Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. It's good to be opening up God's Word together. I encourage you to have the passage open in front of you that Arlene read for us from Esther chapter 1. Esther chapter 1. And we're going to consider these verses 1 through 9 this morning. Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It seems that the world of podcasting is everywhere at the moment. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex were in the news this week because their podcast with Spotify was officially launched. The first episode was launched this week. Do you know that if you want a a, a podcast about the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, you have your choice not only of one but of two podcasts. You can have the official Church House podcast called Refined with Rick Hill or you can have the unofficial PCI podcast, PCI cast, with the Reverend Craig Lynn from Rathcool and the Reverend Ben Preston from Craigie Hill in Larne. My favourite podcast comes from the BBC. It's entitled You're Dead to Me. It's a history podcast for people who love history but forgot to learn any at school. They cover a wide range of historical subjects such as the history of chocolate, the history of the Mayflower, the history of Stonehenge, etc, etc, etc. And one of the things that they do in each podcast is they ask a question at the start of the podcast called, So What Do You Know? And in that, they're trying to to see what the most common things people would know about any particular subject are. So if it was Stonehenge, they might say, So what do you know about Stonehenge? Well, you'll know that it's a, a, a ring of stones, that kind of thing. The most famous uh, subjects about any particular subject, the most famous facts about any particular subject. And as we come to this new series in the book of Esther, and as we start it this morning, that's the question I want us to ask as we come first of all. So what do we know about Esther? And the answer is probably not a lot. The most famous thing about the book of Esther, of course, is that it doesn't mention the name of God anywhere in the book. We might know that section where Esther is asked, well, who knows, perhaps God has made you queen for such a time as this. But that's probably about the height of what we know, isn't it, really? Yet, of course, Esther is a wonderful account of God's redemption. It's a wonderful account of God looking after and looking out for his people. It's a wonderful account of God's people being saved from the hand of their enemies. Esther inaugurates for us the Feast of Purim. And despite God not being mentioned, despite God not being named in this book, it's very clear from the structure of the book, it's very clear from the author of the book, he wants us to ask, well, who is the actor behind all of these actors? Who is the first cause behind all of these secondary causes that we read of in the book? The author wants us to see the unseen, unnamed God very much directing affairs in the book. And as we come to these nine verses, Esther 1, 1 to 9 this morning, we want to think about three things together. Firstly, we want to think about reigning. We'll see how Xerxes the king reigns. Secondly, we want to think about rich, how Xerxes the king is rich beyond all measure. But thirdly and finally, we want to see how Xerxes the king is respectful of others who may not agree with his position. We see him reigning, we see him rich, and we see him respectful. So first of all then, we think about Xerxes reigning, reigning, and we see that as we come to verse 1 of chapter 1. And as we come to verse 1 of chapter 1, we're given the kind of historical time frame to work within. We're given the, 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 the historical layout of the book, aren't we? Depending on what version you're reading, the king will have a slightly different name. 
If you're reading the New International Version, it will be Xerxes. If you're reading the English Standard Version, it will be Ahasuerus. It's important to say that at the outset that these are the same man. These are the same king. You might feel slightly perturbed this morning if I say Ahasuerus and yet your version says Xerxes, or if I say Xerxes and your version says Ahasuerus. But please be assured this morning that these are the same people. It's the same king. It's not two different kings. It's not two different translations. Uh, Ahasuerus is simply the Hebrew version, and Xerxes is the Greek version of the same name, of the same king. I'm going to stick with Xerxes, uh, largely perhaps because it's much easier to pronounce than Ahasuerus, uh, but also I think it's probably the name that we're more familiar with uh, from our, our, our own studies of history. But who was Xerxes then? So we're told that all of this happens, verse 1, during the time of Xerxes. But who is Xerxes? Well, he's the king of Persia. He's the ruler of Persia, a son of Darius I. It's the same Darius who's in Daniel chapter 6, the same Darius who uh, tries to throw Daniel into the lion's den. Xerxes reigned from 485 to 465 BC. He appears at one other point in the Old Testament in the prophecy of Ezra. And it's uh, important to say that there in Ezra, he's opposed to the rebuilding of the temple. He's opposed to the worship of the Lord. So that's the historical setting for the book of Esther. And think just very slightly just after the time of Daniel, very slightly just after the time of Darius I. The people are in exile in Babylon, in Persia. Yet we're told some other things about Xerxes in verse 1. We're told that he reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India all the way into North Africa. You might think today of Pakistan to northern Sudan, that kind of area. And you get an idea of the vastness of the empire. You get an idea of the size of the empire. You get an idea of the reach of the rule of Xerxes. You get an idea of how powerful and how important a world figure he is. But we need to stop and think, well, why is this included here? Why is the, the, the strength of Xerxes, why is the importance of Xerxes included here in this piece of Jewish literature? Well, on one level, we'll say, yes, it gives us a historical perspective. It gives us an, a, a historical authenticity to the message that we're reading. People reading it would have said, well, okay, that's where Xerxes ruled from and to. That was the extent of his empire. We can trust the historicity of the book of Esther. And on one level, that's fine. But there's another point. There's another reason why the author places this here. You see, the author in a few moments is going to tell us about the opulence of the palace. He's going to tell us how, how greatly the palace was decorated. They're going to tell us about all of the richness of the palace. And this is designed to show us his earthly power. It's designed to, to, to show us how great in the world's eyes this king is. But of course, we must read this book as a whole. We must read this book as a, a, a one-subject book as well. For the Jewish person reading this, they would have thought, wow, this Xerxes is important. Wow, this Xerxes is powerful. This Xerxes rules over 127 provinces. He is mighty. He is powerful. But also for the pious Jew who was reading this book, at the back of their mind would have been the thoughts of Psalm 24. Psalm 24 reminded the Jews that the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Xerxes might rule over 127 provinces, but the Lord rules over all. Xerxes might have this extent of a reign and reach, but the Lord rules over all. 
the Acts of, of Union of 1707 and 1800 form what we know today as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, as it was in 1807, uh, in 1800, sorry, but Northern Ireland as it is today. And what this meant was that England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland had the same queen or king. That the queen or king of England also ruled over Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. That the king or queen ruled over not one country, but four, ruled over not one jurisdiction, but four. Xerxes, however, here we're told, reigns over 127 provinces. And it's important to say that this number was chosen to kind of make it as big as possible. It was the, the biggest number, really, that you could have and say that Xerxes ruled over. To make them seem as impressive as possible. But again, the pious Jew reading this would have said, but my God, but my God, but my God reigns and rules over every kingdom and nation. And it's important to remind ourselves of that this morning, that our God reigns, that our God rules from on high, that our rulers and kings are set up and ordained by God, that they are answerable to him. That they're in his power and control. One day they will be called to give an account to him for how they've ruled. It's easy to lose sight of that, friends, isn't it? When we see what happens to our brothers and sisters in North Korea, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that God rules and God reigns. It's easy to lose sight of that fact, especially in the past year where COVID seems to have wrecked havoc on our world, where everywhere we turn with chaos and confusion, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that our God reigns. That our God is in control. That the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We see then King Darius, no, we see, sorry, King Xerxes reigning. But secondly then, we see his riches. We see his riches in verses 2 through 7. Verses 2 through 7. And as we come to verse 2, we're told that Xerxes is reigning from his citadel, from the royal throne in the citadel of Susa. This most likely would have been his winter palace. It would have most likely been the place he went to on retreat to, to, to kind of rest, relax, to unwind a little bit. The same way today that the Queen might go to Balmoral in the summer, so uh, uh, Xerxes went to Susa during the winter. And it's in the third year, we're told, verse 3, it's in the third year of his reign that he decides to have this banquet, that he decides to have this feast, that he decides to have this party for all of the officials of his kingdom. And it's quite a banquet, isn't it? It's quite a guest list that's, that, that's invited to the party. We see that verse 3. We see the great and the good are there. He gave a banquet for all his nobles and all his officials. The powerful, the mighty, the military men are there. Verse 3. The military leaders of Persia, the princes and nobles of the provinces were all present. Most likely this banquet is given in his third year because it's the first year he's had rest. It's the first year where all his enemies have been subdued. And so it's the first year where he's really had time, the first year where he's really had peace to sit down and plan and deliver this party. And we get to the real riches, we get to the real sense of the, the, the extent of Xerxes' wealth in verse 4. For a full 118 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Around six months this banquet lasts. Around six months this party lasts. And he displays the richness of his kingdom. He displays the greatness of his kingdom. He displays the greatness 
of himself. He puts on a bit of a show. Look how rich we are. Look how much stuff our kingdom has. Look how much money we have. Look at our wealth and power. Aren't we great? He puts on a display of the splendor and the glory of his majesty. Now, what do we think of when we read those words? What, what comes to our mind when we think of those words? Well, undoubtedly, of course, we think of kingship, don't we? You know, we think of that idea, your majesty. That's what you say to the queen if you were ever fortunate enough to meet her. But what about glory? What do we think of when we hear the word glory? When I hear the word glory, I tend to think of God. And again, there are little hints, there are little drops being put in by the author here. Little, little bits of almost sarcasm, you would say. You see, King Xerxes puts on display his glory and his majesty and his power. But it's nothing compared to the glory of God. Xerxes displays the riches of his kingdom, but it's nothing compared to the riches of God's kingdom. Xerxes puts on display his glory, but it's nothing when compared to the glory of God, compared to the majesty and rule of God. But of course, for us as Christians, there's an even deeper meaning than that, isn't there? Because Xerxes displays his power and his wealth, but how does he do it? He displays it in the things that he has. He displays it in his riches, in his worldly goods, the greatness and majesty of his name. Yet how did God display his glory this morning, friends? Well, he did it by sending his son, Jesus Christ, didn't he? How did Jesus display the glory and the majesty of the Father? Well, he did it by dying on the cross to save us from our sins. You see, outward glory and majesty are, are, are showy. They're self-promotion. They're saying, look at me, aren't I great? But the glory and majesty of God is self-sacrificing, self-giving love that makes us right with God. The glory of God is revealed in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to make us right with God. So we've had this party for six months, verse four. And when that party's over, it's decided that the time of feasting really isn't over, that we haven't really had enough of a party yet. And so another party's called for. We see that verse five, when these days were over, when the six months were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Most likely this is a party to kind of bribe them. This is a party to to thank them, to pay them off for all of the service that they've offered during the previous six months, for all of the things that they've put up with for the previous six months, for their assistance during the previous party. I think one of the things that people have missed, or certainly that, that has been missed from the news of late, has been the, 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 the garden parties held at Buckingham Palace. You know, in a normal year, as you switch on the news in the summer, it's full of uh, garden parties from Buckingham Palace where the Queen is meeting whoever or whoever, whoever, who's done great things in the local community and meeting the Queen and going to Buckingham Palace is their kind of reward. It's their payback for all that they've done. You know, cups of tea and sandwiches on the lawn, that kind of thing. We see that this party in verse five, it is a party in the garden. It's a party on the lawn, but it's not, uh, it's not so much tea and sandwiches, is it? It is wine and feasting. 
And all of the people are invited from the greatest, from the most important, from the most significant, right down to the least. And we see verse 6, the opulence of the palace. We see the decoration of the palace, the way that it's decorated. Everything about it screams wealth. Everything about it screams money. Everything about it screams importance. White and blue linen was hung everywhere. It was expensive to dye clothes blue. Blue was considered the colour of royalty along with purple. It was tied up with sashes of white linen and purple strips to silver rings on marble pillars. Everything screams money. There was gold couches. They don't sound too comfy to sit on, but they certainly sound expensive to buy. There was a mosaic pavement created. Again, everything was expensive. Everything was rich. Everything was money. We see that continue. Verse 7, the wine was served in goblets of gold. You know, it wasn't out of a, a, a disposable plastic cup that the king served this wine. In case somebody dropped it or in case somebody stole it. No, rather he served it out of goblets of gold. I think the implication is clear. That the king is that rich, that the king is that powerful, that he doesn't care whether someone steals his goblet of gold. He doesn't care what happens to this goblet of gold. It's almost as if this is a disposable cup to him. The royal wine was flowing. The royal wine was flowing with the liberality of the king. He wasn't serving cheap wine. He wasn't serving the Asda kind of box wine. He was serving the, the Charu Neuf de Pape, if you like. Everything screams wealth. Everything screams excess. Everything screams importance. But why? That's the question we come back to time and time again. But why is this included in this Jewish piece of literature? Well, we're going to find out next week. Here is a king who has everything he wants. Here is a king who lives in excess. Here is a king who lives in luxury. Here is a king who rules over 127 provinces. But here is a king who can't manage his own household well. Here is a king whose home is not a happy home. But what for us, though, friends? What's the main lesson for us from this section? Well, I think that... One of the main lessons that we need to draw out is that we need to be careful with our possessions, careful with our desire for possessions. If we're perhaps wealthy, it's easy to flaunt our possessions and use them to make others jealous. It's easy to flaunt that new car. It's easy to, to Instagram our perfect house with its perfect decor and the new couches. And we know that really all that that's doing is making someone else jealous, making them feel worse about themselves. If we're perhaps poor and can't afford to buy all of the things that we would like to buy. It's easy to think, well, and look at someone else and say, well, if only I had that, then my life would be better. If only I had that, then everything would be okay. Life would be complete. But of course, our life won't be complete until we have right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have him, then that's all we need. So we've seen the king reigning, we've seen the king flaunting his riches and then finally we see the king being respectful. We see the king being respectful and we see that in verses 8 and 9. And if I'm honest, this section finishes in quite a surprising place for us, doesn't it? When we come to verse 8, it's not what we might expect to read. We might expect the king to say, look, everyone has to celebrate with me. Everyone has to feast with me. Everyone has to drink with me. But rather what the king says in verse 8 is this. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. 
For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Everyone can drink in their own way, the king said. No one should be under pressure. No one should feel under compulsion to drink simply because we're having this party. But rather, everyone should do what they think is right in their own eyes. But it's telling, isn't it, of his total control. It's telling of his total grip on power that even liberality, even freedom has to be legislated for. And he has to say, look, don't force anyone to drink. That, that, that just screams someone who's a control freak. Yet we do see the king respecting the conscience of people who may not want to get drunk, who may not wish to partake in the parties that's going on. And so he says, well, look, they shouldn't be forced to. So we have this party going on. We have this feast going on for the people in verse 8. But then there's another feast that's happening. Another party that's happening within the confines of the palace. And we see that in verse 9. The men are outside in the garden. The men are outside in the garden, most likely getting drunk. The men are outside in the garden, most likely eating to excess. But while all that's going on, verse 9, Queen Vashti is giving a banquet for the women inside. But notice how it's the palace is described here, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Vashti may be given the banquet. It may be for the women who are inside the palace. But the author leaves us in no doubt that this palace belongs not to Vashti, not to the queen, but to King Xerxes. The whole section poses the question to us, who's in charge here? We have Xerxes ruling over his kingdom. We have the 127 provinces that he's in charge of. We have Xerxes ruling in power and opulence from his palace, surrounded by the very best of everything. We have Xerxes' palace being used for entertaining. But the author wants us to see here the hand behind the hand. The hand that's directing all the affairs of human history. He wants us to see and remember the God who rules over all, not just 127 provinces. He wants us to remember the God to whom the cattle on a thousand hills belong. And he wants us to worship him, not Xerxes. Xerxes may be powerful. Xerxes may be rich. But he wants us to worship the God of heaven and earth. Amen.